Hi, I'm Emily Salaby, founder of Juno Jones, the stylish safety boot company, and your host on the Hazard Girls podcast here on Jacket Media. I'm so honored to host this show where I get to chat with Hazard Girls about their careers. Hazard Girls is an online community for women working in traditionally male-dominated fields. On our show, you'll get to hear from these amazing women about the path that led them to their current careers, challenges they've overcome, advice for other women in entering these industries, and more. Rebecca Ryan is a noted top 50 professional futurist, economist, best-selling author, and entrepreneur. She is the founder of Next Generation Consulting, through which she partners with private and public sector leaders across the country. Looking a generation ahead, she outlines strategies in urban planning, economic development, and workforce development to ensure communities are well-equipped for future trends and challenges. Rebecca is a graduate of Drake University with a certificate in strategic foresight from University of Houston. She is on the executive committee of the Global Association of Professional Futurists as well. Welcome to the Hazard Girls podcast, Rebecca. I am so glad to be with you and all these righteous divas whom both your previous guests and all the folks who are tuning in with their own ears right now. Oh, yeah. Righteous divas is a very good way to describe the Hazard Girls for sure. (laughs) Badass ladies. Okay. So as far as I am aware, you are our very first futurist on the show. (laughs) Is that your official job title? I'm an economist and a futurist. And yeah, it is an official job title. (laughs) Okay. Because when I heard, when I first heard about this, you know, through you, I was like, because I hadn't heard about this before. I'm thinking, is this like a new age thing? <laughs> In your website, you said something about like, this is not woo woo. And I was like, woo woo, is that the right word? Woo woo? Mm-hmm. This is not woo woo. And I totally knew what you meant. So I was like, okay, it's not new age. <laughs> Nothing against new age. So can you tell us what is it? Like, what what is a futurist? It's a wonderful question. And it's a really common question because in the United States, in North America, we don't have a lot of working professional futurists anymore. We used to, and all of Asia and New Zealand and Europe and many parts of Canada have working futurists, but America, it's not widespread here. So it's a good question. But here's, I think, the best way that I can describe it. So all of your listeners probably had to take a history class to get through school, right? We take uh-huh. American history, English, European history, you know, world history, all these things. So you're required to take history. And what is history? It's the study of the past, or at least one person's version of what the past was. So we have a sense of what history is. And then journalism is the profession that's dedicated to what's happening now, the present. And most of us probably are highly consumptive of a lot of journalism. So we definitely know the study of the present. The future also has a profession, people like me, you know, strategic futurists who look at the trends that are coming. And we just simply try to help our clients understand what's coming Mm -hmm. so that they can plan and design the futures that they want. And just to put this in some perspective for you, for example, I work with a lot of cities and I think a lot of your listeners, you know, who work in building trades, who work in engineering, who work in some of these tough jobs, cities are often their clients, right? Mm -hmm. And you know, therefore, that for cities... Their planning tool is their budget, and their budget usually looks 12 months into the future. And I'm actually at a hotel in Vancouver right now, and yesterday the executive of this 
association that serves municipalities in introducing me, he said, cities use the budget as their planning tool. And if we think it's okay to now just plan 12 months at a time, we're not doing the right thing by our children because of just the number of threats that are out there, not just COVID, but wildfires and drought and Mm -hmm. some of these things that are persistent. So futurists plan using trends and what's coming instead of what we've always done. Now, so strategic planning is a, is a very common thing in organizations, right? So what is the difference between futurism and strategic planning? You with your good questions, Emily. <laughs> it's, a, it's a great question. So I think the big difference is many strategic planning processes look over their shoulder at the past and they say, okay, what, what have we done? What are we really good at? And so therefore, what do we want to do in the future? Traditional strategic planning, we tend to have a a present bias and a past bias. But if you only do that, you end up like one of those rock bands that plays at a county fair, you know, like all their greatest hits are from the 80s, 90s and 2000s. They haven't figured out how to like reinvent themselves and make themselves contemporary. So they have to continue to play in smaller and smaller and smaller venues. What we do as futurists is we we don't disregard the past or the present, but our bias when doing planning is to what's coming. So the question we will ask is, all right, where do we want to be in 2050? And then if we can really discern what that vision could plausibly look like, then we start backcasting. So if we want X to be true in 2050, What has to be true in 2040 to enable 2050? And so our planning process is one of backcasting, which is the opposite of what strategic planning does, which is usually strategic planning starts with today and says, all right, where do we want to be 12 months from now, 24 months from now, 36 months from now? Hmm. All right. Let's back up for a minute. I just, I want to understand a little bit about how you got into this. What was your career path? Like, what is your background? Share with our listeners your career journey a little bit, just, you know, for inspiration, but also I'm, I'm just very curious to know how you got into this field. Yeah. Most people who become strategic futurists don't go to school for it. I mean, like we mentioned earlier, you know, in North America, there are only a couple of colleges and universities that even have these programs. So it's unusual that people who end up in my profession start there. But I have to say, listening to the back catalog of your podcast, many of these gals, like they thought they were going to be a doctor and then they started doing something else. I mean, the path to sustainable fashion or to, you know, being the director of a port authority Mm -hmm. isn't a linear one. And same for me. So I graduated with an economics degree, an undergraduate degree in economics and international relations. And I thought I was going to join like the CIA and do kind of global intelligence work. This was the era of Madeleine Albright. I know I'm dating myself. May she rest in peace. And so it was. It, it felt like interesting and important. And I had played professional basketball in Budapest, Hungary. So I had relationships and connections in that part of the world. And a lot was changing in Eastern Europe at the time. I didn't get into law school. And then I thought, oh my gosh, now what am I going to do? So I decided to, you know, kind of try to bloom where I was planted. And I had five jobs in four years, most of them in the education and economic development sector working for the state of Iowa. And that is when I started to understand the importance of trends and trend tracking. And I started to look at demographic changes. So many of us know that in Canada and the US, we have a huge baby boom population. 
and a much smaller Generation X population coming behind it. So you can imagine that in the future, we're already experiencing some of it now, you know, we're going to have talent shortages because boomers will be retiring and there won't be enough workers to backfill for them. But then coming behind Generation X are the millennials who are, again, a really big generation. So I started looking at generational change and I sent a letter to, after having five jobs in four years, I thought, mm, I am a terrible employee. I think I would rather work for myself. Good reason. <laughs> right? Exactly. So I sent a letter to everyone I knew. There were like 150 people. And this was back in the day before like mass email was a thing. I know I'm uh -huh. really dating myself, but I remember mm -hmm. buying 150 stamps. And I sent a letter to everyone I knew and said, hey, I want to talk about generational change. If you want to hire me as a speaker at your next event, I would love to come. And I got my first gig with the Iowa Bankers Association, and he referred me to other bankers associations. And then I started working for credit unions, and then I started working throughout financial services. And then I wrote a report called Hot Jobs, Cool Communities that had a, a really keen insight. And the insight was the next generation isn't picking, isn't getting a job and then moving wherever the job is. Mm -hmm. They are first picking a place to live and then finding a job in that location. So we started talking about how San Francisco was growing and how Austin was growing because it was like this cool community and people wanted to live there. Yeah. And then they would figure out what their job was. And that was the reverse from prior generations. So over time, my company, which was is called Next Generation Consulting, we started tracking generational change. And then eventually I went back to school and went to the University of Houston and got my certificate in strategic foresight and started doing much more than just generational change work for clients. I started looking at all the trends and factors that could be influencing people's futures. So cool. Now, now you've got me curious. Is this still the truth that people are moving somewhere and then choosing their jobs? Well, COVID's been like a really interesting case study because for young singles or people who don't have kids in schools and don't have that kind of friend network, it's been a time of really high mobility. So we're, we're seeing people with, you know, highly rated skills or people who are entrepreneurs being like an Airbnb generation where they're literally just moving from Airbnb to Airbnb. I'm going to spend a couple months here, then a couple months here, and they're getting their travel on mm -hmm. and making their living from wherever they can. Yeah. Big change. Now you and your team, you mentioned in your, in your notes, craft vision plans yeah. for decades to come. It's very hard for me to imagine this because when I start to think about decades to come, I, honestly, I get a little intimidated. That's it's a scary thought because you're thinking you're starting to think so far beyond the present that you almost start to think, well, will I even be here? You know, who will members of my family be here? So that that kind of um, I find that to be like an intimidating thought. Do you encounter that when you're crafting vision plans? Yeah. I mean, whenever we start with a client, the first step is to frame the domain. So uh -huh. we ask, all right, how far into the future are we going to look with this project? Uh -huh. And we've got some clients who say we can't look more than 10 years out. Like a lot of municipalities, local governments don't want to look more than 10 years out. I mean, and 10 years is a long time, let's face it. But <laughs> yeah, right. Especially with the amount of yeah, amount of volatility we've had. Yeah. But I'll tell you what, little secret of foresight, whenever possible, we try to help clients think even beyond 10 years. Why? We know that they're going to be a little bit nervous. And we've got a series of techniques to kind of calm the nerves there. But 
the, the number one reason is because when you can start to think about the future that you want for your kids or for your grandkids, something really important happens. And that is people let their ego go to the side. Mm. Because we find that the ego can be can create difficulty when trying to come up with visions for the future. Because if you've got a person in leadership or a person who wants to be the next CEO, you know, they're probably in the discussion about the future. And they may be, even if they don't intend, they may be bringing a level of energy or a level of agenda Mm -hmm. that they're trying to advance. And in that case, we're no longer dealing with the future as it could be. Right. We're dealing with the future as it's being filtered through this one person's preferences. Because maybe maybe the, the vision of the future includes a time when they've retired. <laughs> Is that what you're, what you're saying? Exactly. Exactly. But I do want to just say to you, Emily, if you have a hard time like imagining those far out futures, I just want to like put my arm around you as your big sister for just <laughs> the next 30 seconds and say, when we're exploring the futures, we're not trying to have an answer. Mm-hmm. We're just coming with the mind of curiosity of saying, we're not sure. Let's think about it together. And and when you stop trying to have the answer or like getting the right answer, a whole field of new possibilities opens up. Now, when you're crafting the vision, is there a, are there certain, is there a format or like certain techniques that you go through with a client to create those plans? Yeah, we, we have a four phase process that we use. Some clients want to use the whole thing. Depending on what's happening, some clients just want to do a deep dive in one of the four areas. So let me describe the four areas real quickly. The first phase we call sensing. And this is where we just try to sense what is happening right now in the environment and what is likely to happen. And sometimes we can get actual data projections. So for example, if you're living in the Western part of the United States and Canada, we have some pretty good data about when rivers are going to run dry. We have some pretty good data about drought conditions, about climate change, and we have a sense of what those futures could be like, right? But sometimes we don't have data, but we're still trying to sense, okay, how are our customers changing? I'm thinking about your Boots company, right? Like, how are our customers changing? If As your customers are getting older, you might have to have wider toe boxes for all those bunions and Morton's and Aroma and, you know, the way that the, the human female foot changes over time. So as you think about, okay, how are our customers going to change? How are market conditions going to change? How's competition going to change? How is talent going to change? Are we going to have more difficulty finding great people? Are we going to have less difficulty finding great people? And you just start figuring out what those trends will be in those core areas during the course of the domain. So for the purpose of us, let's just say for 10 years. So over 10 years, what do we anticipate is going to happen in our in our domain? That's sensing. Then we usually play a really fun game to help people co-create and share some ideas back and forth with each other. And then at the end of sensing, we have a set of trends that we as a group with our client, we agree are going to be the most important things we're going to have to face in the future. So then we go to the second phase, which is imagining. So we take those trends almost as the seedlings and we say, all right, if these trends happen in the future, let's imagine what our futures could be. And in this case, we look at three kinds of futures. We look at a really challenging future where things don't go right. Okay. So I I did notice you said futures with an S there. Yes. What you're talking about. Okay. Yes, yes. So futures don't predict a future. Right. We explore multiple futures because there isn't 
a single future. So you have a plan, you have a plan in place for each possibility. Yeah, 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 absolutely. So we explore a challenging future. We explore an expectable future, like if past trends persist, what do we think will be true? And then we look at two aspirational futures. Now, I know you want to know, why are you doing two aspirational futures when you're only doing one challenging future and one expectable future? And the reason is because humans tend to be a little down on the future. Mm -hmm. We tend to worry about the future. We tend to think it's not going to be as good as the past. Things were better before, especially as people get older. So we do two aspirational futures to kind of overwrite the normal tendency to be bleak about the future. That's the second phase. Imagine so like two possible ways that things can go amazing. Yes. Yes. <laughs> okay. So there are multiple possible ways that things could go amazing. You know what I think is happening right now, Emily? My visionary energy is running up against your organizer energy because I can tell <laughs> you're like, wait, what? How many boxes are in this spreadsheet? Let's talk about this. So so yes, there are there are more than one ways that the future can go right. And as a simple example of two tech of two methods that the future could be really, really bright. You could think about a bottom-up approach to this, right? What if we created our own luck? What if our customers were really behind us, you know, a bottom-up approach? Or you could look at more of a top-down approach like, wow, what if all of a sudden the trade environment, the trade regulations changed and the dollar became really cheap and our products became, you know, these are things that are outside of your control, but would be really favorable to your future. Okay. So that's the imagining phase. Then the last two phases are defining and doing. So in the defining phase, that's when we really define what is the 10-year vision and what are the primary things we have to get done to mitigate any negative future possibilities and maximize any positive future possibilities. That's how we define. And then we go to doing and we say, all right, well, nothing's going to happen until something happens. How do we get stuff done? So 10 years, I, I think 10 years is manageable. I can think I can handle that. <laughs> but, you know, what is the advantage of doing that instead of just do it, saying like five years? Like why, why 10 years? What is the advantage of looking so far ahead? Yeah, well, I think a couple of things. Number one is it really widens your aperture even further. So even the five-year future feels somewhat seeable somewhat knowable, but the 10-year future feels a little bit broader. So it's going to allow some additional things to come through. I mean, as an example, it takes a community 20 years to build a new highway, right? So if we're looking at only a five-year window for them, I mean, basically nothing's going to get done in the next five years. So we've got to widen the aperture. And on a personal level, you know, maybe, maybe your listeners will be able to relate to this. I've done this technique for my own life. So there was a there was a moment when I was getting ready to do a TED talk and I thought all right if this TED talk really explodes my life might be different. Mm -hmm. If it doesn't that'll be kind of my current life, you know, extended out. Yeah. But then what would a challenging future look like for me? Okay. So I did this for myself. And I started from a place of just saying, all right, what's currently happening in my life? And if these trends continue to move forward, all right, what does that look like in each of these futures? So as an example for me, I mean, one thing that was definitely happening was I was getting older, <laughs> you know, over the course of the next five years, 10 years, we're going to be five or 10 years older. And how was my health improving or was it declining? And at that time, my health was declining. I was getting older. I was making 
fewer good choices. I was doing a lot more travel. You know, my sleep was terrible. And I was looking at, so I was looking at my health. I was also looking at my earning ability. So women's earning ability tends to go up, 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 up. And it kind of peaks in the late 40s, early 50s. So I was thinking about, all right, what's the trend line probably for my earning? And how's that going to go over the expectable future? I was looking at my relationships with the people closest to me. You know, were those relationships improving? Were they neutral? Were they declining? And I also looked at my relationship to work because there was, I was one of those people who I could always work more. I would work seven days a week if I could. I would work 50 hours a week if I could. <laughs> and it seemed like there was just any, everything would get cut except work. I would, you know, cut yeah. out time with my family, time for myself and so forth. So it was really sobering to take a look at just those few trends. And then imagine if my TED Talk blew up, you know, if my TED Talk blew up, I was probably going to be absolutely miserable because there was no margin in my life to take on more. My relationships already weren't a priority to me. My health was already suffering. So it's kind of like I looked at that as like a good news item of a popular uh -huh. TED Talk and thought this isn't as great as we think it's going to be. And then I looked, yeah, and then I looked at a really challenging future for myself where maybe my level of work was was contributing to lower quality work for my clients. And if I let that continue to happen, that was also not awesome. So I ran all these futures and I said, okay, what are the things I can control that are going to help me regardless of the TED Talk blows up and regardless if, you know, I really screw up for a client? And a few things came through. Number one, I was doing a Zen practice at the time. I thought I have got to get my ass on this cushion every single day and find my center and come into my life being centered and grounded. Number two, I have got to make time for the people I love because I do not want to die in an airport somewhere alone. That is mm -hmm. not optimal. Number three, we're going to start to take Fridays off in the summer. And I'm going to take those Fridays off too. So it started to claw back some personal times where there was a clear demarcation. And I did this mostly for myself, but I was like, anybody who works on Friday has to put $20 into like the food, the lunch money bin so that I would find myself if I did work on a Friday. And then I also really decided to prioritize my marriage. That it was always the thing. My spouse is so understanding. If I have to work, it's okay. You go work. And I thought, this is, again, not optimal. So I made some key changes and the TED Talk didn't take off. But I am so much happier now than I was, you know, seven, eight years ago when I when I did that process. Did you sabotage your TED Talk? I No, I don't think I sabotaged my TED Talk. I mean, I left it all. I left it all on that red dot. You were just prepared. So if it did blow up, you had margin. You had a prep. You, yeah, you had a plan. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Now, is that scary though to like to think about the worst case scenario? Is that like mentally? Is that okay? That's a. I really appreciate this question because I've met other women who will say like, I don't want to speak that challenging future out loud because that's just like inviting the devil in, you know. <laughs> and while I understand that. Two things. Number one is this is just an exploration. This is just an exploration. It's kind of like a dress rehearsal for a future that you don't want to happen. But when you actually have to step into that future, some things change in you. You know, you realize like, wow, some of this is not sustainable anymore. And that is very powerful to do. So number one, it's an exploration. And number two, wouldn't you rather rehearse that future now rather than just 
accidentally possibly have it come true and then be surprised when it gets there. So we're just doing a dress rehearsal. It's just an exploration. None of this is designed to come true, but we we think it's just good planning. You know, it's like, be mindful about the, what the best case scenario could be, but also be mindful about the worst case scenario. Now, a lot of our listeners, as you know, there are women in these male-populated industries, and they've got their own sets of challenges. I should say we, because I'm also in one, coming from the transportation industry. What goes along with that is that is really time is part of it. So we're, we're balancing so much. And meanwhile, we're trying to prove ourselves in these industries. So when a client, what do you do when a client says to you, like, I, you know, I really just don't have the time to put into this? Or maybe it's not a client yet. Maybe it's someone you're you're just talking to about it. And they said, there's, there's no way I can make time for this. I have so many other priorities. Yeah. Well, if you don't have time for it because you have other priorities, you shouldn't do it. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, I think the question becomes, when is it expected of you to be strategic and looking ahead? You know, one of your prior guests, Colleen, talked about how one of the things she coaches her, her coachees about is foresight you know, using foresight. So I would say for any listeners who are expected to do strategic planning as part of their job, check out strategic foresight because it can really give you a competitive advantage in how you design your plans. They'll be more resilient because they will have explored more than one future. So the plan will be, it will be resilient across multiple futures. It also may open up some opportunities or threats that you hadn't thought about before. And that just helps you be more future ready. And I guess the third thing I would say, if your job is to do some strategic planning, is that when you explore the future, you end up being able to bring in more people to that conversation. And I think one of the things we as women do exceptionally well is we know how to set a table for more people. And so as we think about our role in diversity, equity, inclusion, and accessibility, Foresight is one of those tools where you can really get more voices at the table. And the more voices you have at the table, the better your plan's going to be. Yeah, I love that idea of connecting it with DEI. Okay, <laughs> I'm a little afraid to ask this. You know, in talking about strategic foresight, if you're a woman in a non traditional industry and you're in a leadership position, sometimes there's more judgment against you. And say you, you know, you, you are doing strategic foresight and you are, you're seeing things for the future that isn't good, let's face it, isn't good news, you know, for your company. How do you communicate that message without being the bad guy in the situation? How do you have, you know, how do you avoid like the whole shoot the messenger thing there? Yeah, exactly. Well, you, number one, shouldn't be the messenger. You should hire a consultant because you can pin all things on a consultant. You know, it's so easy to fire a consultant. (laughs) And and a good consultant, again, is going to talk about the range of things that could happen in the future. And some, some things are great, but some things aren't great. And I guess the final thing I would say is, I'm actually dealing with a client right now where the the client's organization is always kind of glass half full. Okay. And there are some real challenges affecting the future of this organization that everyone is just kind of merrily papering over. You know, oh, we just don't, we won't look under that cushion or we won't look behind that cupboard because we don't want to see what's there. And I have to say, even as a consultant, I've done this for 25 years. I'm, this is an outlier for me. 
I can't remember interfacing with a client that was this afraid to look at some things that everyone else can clearly see. So if your listeners, if our listeners are thinking like, oh my God, that's my client or that's my situation. We, we are the same way. We have happy ears. We never look at any. Maybe foresight isn't the right thing to do if you're trying to save your career and save your butt. You know, maybe you want to think about, all right, if, you know, is this the right place for me? You know, should I, would I, my talents be better served in a place that is willing to face the future as it is, not the future that they're pretending it is, this weird parallel universe. But I don't know that I would risk my career if I was between 20 and 30 and 40 years old on something like that. Do you think that kind of a thing, that kind of an attitude comes from just from the leadership or do you think it's just, it's kind of in the whole culture of an organization? I do think the flavor of the Sunday starts at the top. Okay. But it's not cherry. It's not cherry flavored. Okay. Well, so let's talk a little bit about your organization. Net Generation Consulting is your firm. What programs do you have for individuals and for companies? What, I guess what kind of things can you offer? And like, do you have, I, I was reading on your website that I think you have a webinar and I, th- I saw something about a camp. Yeah. Yeah. So we've discontinued Futurist Camp at present. When COVID came and we couldn't gather in person, we tried to do it online and the return just wasn't quite there. There's, you cannot even via Zoom, create a bonfire, which, and that's one of the, the joys of getting people offline and into the woods. Oh, that was a real camp. It was a real camp. It was an amazing run. I feel still to this day like it's one of the best things I ever did. But those days may be permanently behind us now. So yeah, we do um, a first Friday series, or excuse me, a futures Friday series during spring and fall, where we bring in guests to talk about how they're using foresight in their own environment. I also encourage people to check out the Association of Professional Futurists. They have a program on the first Friday of every month for people around the world using foresight. We primarily work with organizations or leadership teams, so we don't have anything on our website for individuals. So in in those cases, just Google Foresight for My Life. There are several organizations out there that have done pretty cool sort of step-by-step, here's how to do it. But I would say that overall, the thing I want to reinforce for people is you are already a futurist. You know, if you buy insurance or you watch weather reports, or you plan for vacations, or you have a kid and you've started a college fund, or you save for retirement, Mm -hmm. those are all futuring activities where you're trying to hedge your bets or be informed about the future. So what what I do for my living is not magic. (laughs) It's just a set of techniques that can help you turn that natural curiosity about the future into something useful. That's amazing. Okay, so we're all futurists already. That's right. It's just a matter of, of exercising those muscles, maybe. <laughs> That's it. Well, Rebecca Ryan, professional futurist and economist, thank you so much for joining us on the Hazard Girls podcast today. This has been so enlightening. I, I'm lear- I've learned so much, and I, I can't wait to explore more about it. Emily, I've got all the jazz hands over here because <laughs> I love what you are doing for women in the trades, women in engineering. All these hazard girls, these badass divas out there, just huge tip of the hat. You know, I'm in my 50s now. And to think about our next generation having access to tools like this, you're doing great work. Well, thank you. I mean, every single day, I'm just so inspired by our audience. All, all these amazing women are what keeps me going every day. And uh, you're one of them. So thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. 
You have been listening to the Hazard Girls podcast on Jacket Media, sponsored by Juno Jones, the stylish safety boot company. That's junojonesshoes.com. And you can go there to learn about our steel toe boots and to join the Hazard Girls community. I'm your host, Emily Salaby. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next week. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.